Hey ghouls, happy hump day, and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks, and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hey ghouls, happy hump day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast. Tonight it's 80s night and I'm joined by my best ghoul as always, Lindsay. How you doing babes? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm trying to cope in this heat wave, but I'm okay. <laughs> you look like you caught a bit of the sun actually. Do you know what? I've barely been out in it as well. So that's impressive for me. Like I, I think I let the dog out a couple of times yesterday so I could avoid it. And um, yeah, that's so yeah, it's managed to catch me. Hence why I'm trying to avoid it. <laughs> if, I feel like anyone that's like isn't from the UK and hears about like the weather we're having right now they're like oh it's not that bad but UK heat waves are just a different breed from elsewhere it's so like humid and disgusting isn't it absolutely I mean it's only well I'm saying only it's like 24 degrees celsius today but it's like if you go like to Europe and it's 24 degrees it doesn't feel like this like this is horrific I'm not <laughs> built for the sun I'm built for harsh winters <laughs> so have you just been hiding inside this weekend yes yes <laughs> fair, fair play um and we are not alone today we have a wonderful guest with us which is Abigail how are you go I'm good and actually yeah my personal Instagram I go by Abigail so it works <laughs> I love that Abigail yes amazing <laughs> So as I kind of already mentioned, it's going to be 80s night tonight and we're going to be talking all things 80s horror movies. But before we get into that, um, Abigail, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners um, and your like where your love of horror came from and just a little bit about like your corner of the internet? Yeah, so I am an author, queer historian, uh, specializing in queer representation in American horror movies. So that's the topic of my book, Queer Screens, which should be coming out in the fall. Uh, I'm also a contributing writer to Horror Press LLC, which is a fantastic new uh, horror platform, blog, tons of editorials. That's been a fantastic experience. But yeah, my first sort of foray into horror was, it's a combination of The Ring which I was extremely afraid of the dark when I was a kid. And I would just imagine the little girl from the ring in the corner of my room. Uh, Chucky also was horrifying to me, even just visually. But yeah, I mean, my parents, they weren't, they censored some stuff for us, but whenever we went to Blockbuster, it was like, okay, get a new movie that was just released and then a horror film. So they kind of fostered that for me. No, that sounds amazing. And also Chucky, like key queer horror icon. Yes. Um, yes. 
and the ring I found the ring terrifying as well oh. I didn't I didn't watch it till I was a bit older because seeing like the clips of it as a kid I was like nope I am right. not divulging into that but um you mentioned queer screams there and like as somebody that also writes about queer horror um I'm so happy for you because we need so much more like queer books out there specifically about horror and there's so much just to, to discuss when it comes to queer horror so do you want to tell people a little bit more about the book if you're willing to share the kind of things that you're going to be diving into yeah so it started as my master's thesis I got my master's in American studies and I wanted to incorporate all my obsessions so horror movies queerness uh just bringing myself into the academic discussion of uh, horror movies in general. But when I was researching, I found that only one book, I could be wrong, but in my research, I found only one book by Harry Benchoff called Monsters in the Closet. And that was published in 1997. And that was kind of the only book that I found that is, was solely devoted to queer horror movies. And of course it was in the nineties. So the discourse didn't really reach into non-binary representation, transgender representation. So I tried in a few of my chapters to really focus on lack of representation for those groups, but also those groups are entirely demonized in the horror genre. Of course there's reclamation, which I talk a lot about in my book, and sort of this catharsis that queer people can find when watching horror movies. And so like I will discuss with my movie coming up, there's um, more that needs to be said about trans characters in horror, non-binary characters in horror. I'm cisgender myself, but I a lot of these films that talk about transgender representation the narrative is very confusing. They equate transgender with uh, being gay or lesbian. And of course you can be both, you could be many things, but they correlate it to being uh, lesbian or gay and not giving non-binary and transgender representation its due. Um, so yeah, I touch upon that in the book. Uh, it goes from Frankenstein, 1931, up until the Fear Street trilogy of 2021. I love that. And I'm probably going to reference Queer Screams. <laughs> I can already see it now in my future writing, but you're so right, because when um, I wrote about queer horror in the anthology series here, Scream, Monsters in the Closet was one of the only things I could reference, because there was nothing, especially when it comes to academic theory and queer horror. and. Right. You're, I also, I recently wrote about like being non-binary in horror and a lot of it is just like coming to your own consensus because there really isn't that many publications or journals or articles specifically about gender fluidity in horror and there's so much to speak about when it comes to that and as you said the trans community as well because what we'll speak about it in our first movie choice as well because that's a big topic for discussion but um, yeah everyone if you haven't already please go check out Queer Screams when it comes out because you're into queerness and you're into horror it sounds like it's gonna be right up your alley. Yeah I'm very excited for it to come out. I've been working on it for almost four years. So, oh wow. Yeah. 
very exciting. Um, but we will get into the spooky sleepover. So as mentioned, it is 80s night and we have two film choices. So the first one, Abigail, you chose Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers. Now this was actually a first watch for me. Um, Lindsay, was it a first watch for you as well? Yeah, like I was very aware of the Sleepaway Camp franchise. So I decided to watch the first and the second one so that I was fully in the know Ed talk about unhappy unhappy campers but yeah this was the first watch for me and Abigail why did you choose sleepaway camp because I mean it, it, it is quintessentially 80s but with, was that like the first thing that came to mind when uh, we chose this theme well whenever I when I thought of the theme tubular 80s I just thought of basically all the outfits of the sleepaway camp series I mean they're iconic just the really tight short shorts for men, the tube socks, the big hair. And then, so I knew that a lot of people discuss the first Sleepaway Camp based on if you've seen it, the iconic uh, conclusion. And I want to choose this one because it's not talked about as much. And unlike the first one where it's extremely problematic, um, although people have reclaimed the character of Angela, the second one on Happy Campers and the third one, I believe is called Teenage Wasteland. They're low budget, they're offensive, they're, you know, but there's something to be said about the evolution of the character of Angela and how in this one, it is explicit that the character is trans. Although the history of that is a little bit confusing because in the first one, it's revealed that she uh, was born male, she was Peter, but it wasn't her choice to transition, it was her aunt. But in this one, she's like, nope, I am a girl, I identify as a girl. And they touch upon that explicitly in a movie for, I think this came out in 1989, that it was shocking when I first saw it, but there's also all these homages to 80s movies at the time it's kind of kind of meta in that sense there's a reference to the freddy glove jason mask but so it's it's just very 80s and very of the reagan era so i just wanted to talk a little bit more about that i'm interested of how the conversation will go yeah, definitely. I'll be really looking forward to getting into that because there is a lot to speak about. And Lindsay, I can't confirm earlier today, I did watch the original as well. And I'm glad I will. I feel like you need to kind of watch the first one to watch the second one. Um, and I know that the listeners won't be able to see it, but Abigail, you're, you're wearing a sleepaway camp t-shirt specifically for today. So we appreciate the effort. <laughs> yep, I'm a unhappy camper. Camp Rolling Hills. <laughs> And then the other film for um, 80s night, Lindsay's chosen, and she's, I mean, you're always in my good books, but especially today, what have you chosen? Uh, I went for the Sam Raimi classic, The Evil Dead. Yeah, and why did you choose that? Um, Because I know, like, you love The Evil Dead, it's always going to be something so fun to talk about. Um. And yeah, like, I really enjoy it. I love, I was watching it and I was thinking about the com comparisons and the differences between the remake, because I'm a bit more familiar with that and I, like, I really, really love it. And you can see 
how this film has been influential in other films and see how these two things come together and I'm still angry that we're never going to get an Ash and Mia crossover film. I know part of me really hopes with Evil Dead Rises, which is still a 2022 release day. I, I mean, it's not got Mia in it, but I don't know, like, you know, they're extending the universe and all this. So we can hope one day, right? Sam Raimi, give, give, give this to us. We've had a tough couple years. <laughs> give the people what they want. Um, but we are going to start off with Sleepaway Camp 2. And Lindsay, I'm going to let you take it away. There used to be this camp about 60 miles from here, Camp Arawak. All these kids started getting killed. Well, it ended up that the killer was the shy 14-year-old girl that everybody picked on, except she wasn't- Baby, you're supposed to be in the cabin, let's go. Wait, what happened to the killer? Whatever happened to the good kids in the world? Oh, don't talk like that, Uncle John. There's lots of good kids. We just have to weed out the bad. Remember, ladies, nice girls don't have to show it off. Where's Phoebe? I had to send her home. I found her doing things with the boys last night that she had no business doing. <laughs> I know the rest of you are nice young ladies and you won't get into any trouble. Let this be a lesson to you. Say no to drugs. Camp Rolling Hills is the best. Oh! being the wicked witch of the west hey but i know what happens when things get out of control you're gonna tell good night campers so the imdb plot for sleepaway camp to unhappy campers is Angela, supposedly reformed and living under an assumed surname, is working at a summer camp. However, when the, when the campers start misbehaving, she soon reverts to her old ways. So, as I said before, this film came out in 1988, sorry. <laughs> Stars Pamela Springsteen, Renee Estevez and Tony Higgins. Was directed by Michael A. Simpson, who also directs uh, Sleepaway Camp 3. Uh, both films were filmed back to back. Um, and this was written by Fritz Gordon and based on the characters created by Robert Hiltzik. Yeah, so definitely like a piece of iconic 80s media. Um, why don't we get into the plot a little bit? Right, so yeah, I mean, Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, there, there, if you haven't seen the original, you, there will be spoilers in this, as I already sort of spoiled. But yeah, I chose this one because, I mean, it's just, it's so 80s. And the title character of Angela is played by Bruce Springsteen's cousin, Pamela Springsteen. That's why, I mean, 
they have her sing a lot in this movie. I was like, hmm, I wonder if they were like trying to do something there. <laughs> She's constantly singing her camp songs. And then the other sort of protagonist is Renee Estevez, Emilio Estevez's sister. So also related to Charlie Sheen, very 80s film family. And even just the style, mullets abound. Um, everything the Schote sisters wear, they're just like smoking and drinking the whole time. And they have like these uh, tied camp shirts, huge hair. Uh, the singular ear male piercing is also, I noticed it on multiple of the uh, men there. And even just how it's, it's very much rooted in the Ronald Reagan presidency. I mean, the just say no to drugs and Angela's sort of this, she's so complicated, but she, although she's sort of this reclaimed trans hero, she's also her kill count is incredible and it's not not all the kids are bad you know and she goes after kids who take drugs who swear who drink and it's just kind of funny in that sense and if you watch the third one teenage wasteland she her character gets a little bit more uh i think she's just tired <laughs> by that time she's killed too many she's tired and she starts going after people for very, um, prob not problematic reasons. They are the problem. She goes after a racist cheerleader. She said, you're a racist, you're a bigot, like all this stuff. And it's sort of like, oh yes, this trans hero going after these oppressors. And even there's little tidbits of that 80s era in the film. I mean, one uh, camp counselor after she finishes having sex with a boy she's like you don't have AIDS or anything do you and it's so it's very much rooted in that as well and yeah so that that's kind of why I chose it what I want to know what you guys thought of your first watches because I've seen this now I think three times um well when I was watching this I kind of thought Lucy and I I spoke about for ages about how we would absolutely love like a female villain to have a, their own franchise to be the serial killer to be the murderer and to go through it and and like I kick myself like why have I sat on this franchise for so long and never watched it because I do feel like Angela is that because I'm watching it and I'm like I know she's the bad guy but I support her I support women's rights and I support women's wrongs and <laughs> and I like I fully agree with what she's doing um I think also the way her motivations particularly in this film I've not seen the third one but um I feel like it's very reminiscent of other female villains that we've had in horror I couldn't help not help but think about Pamela Voorhees in this film um yes. the way she kills people who that she doesn't think are acting appropriately um uh, yeah I really enjoyed it actually I was like I was worried obviously because of the the trans element and because it's 80s I'm like oh I don't know if I'm gonna like this because they're not gonna handle it properly but Angela's like too good, good a character like not to get behind yeah I'm in total agreement I, I was a, I was a bit worried 
after watching the first one and the ending and that reveal and I was just like oh how, how is this gonna go and I'm kind of kicking myself as well because I never watched Sleepaway Camp before until the podcast and I feel like I see a lot of people take the piss out of it and shit on it on on like Twitter and sometimes in the horror community about oh it's so like I mean everyone has their own opinions and stuff like that but oh it's so over dramatic it's all this all that as all 80s horror movies are let's be honest um the way they handled it in this one is much better than the first one you know it's Angela Angela and her transness is kind of addressing the first little bit of the film and then it's not really it's not her defining character trait which we see a lot uh, not just in horror but in media in general especially when it comes to trans women and like you said I mean Lindsay we've spoken so many times about how we need a proper female horror villain because all the big franchises it's all men it's all cis white men um and I feel like Angel's maybe not spoken enough about when it comes to female horror villains because I mean a lot of people think of like Jennifer Tilly, Jennifer Tilly and like Chucky and like as you said um Jason Voorhees's mum and all that kind of stuff so no I think it's it's quite trailblazing considering this came out in 1988 you I know you're not supposed to root for her but you are rooting for her and especially near the end as well where she speaks about all her troubles and you know all her electroshock therapy that she had to go through and medically transitioning and all these people that were awful to her you're kind of like well you know what you deserve to get your revenge babe I support you good for her clap moment even just the trauma like at the start of the very first film when her dad and her uh, sister die in that boating accident even that's like bad enough and then there's just like all this other stuff and on top of it I'm just like I don't blame you for doing what you do just go ahead Angela I support you (laughs) live your best life babe exactly (laughs) because I mean she's just mercilessly bullied and like I growing up I was very quiet and like people just jump on that and especially she was quiet um and she kind of reminded me of Carrie a little bit just in the sense of just so bullied and when she finally gets her revenge it's like yep good for her like you guys were terrible to her watching these I feel like there's you can have an element of catharsis in like okay she's she's killing the oppressors she's rising above it all and even in this movie I counted I have a list here there was one two three four five uses of homophobic language uh she's constantly called dyke yeah and it's like fuck you guys like leave her alone and like she's just this chipper person and like people are shitting all over her and yeah so and as someone who was called a dyke in sixth grade it's like hell yeah do it I mean yes she's murdering people but this is also a movie and it's nice to watch <laughs> like at the end when you see how many bodies are in that one little uh deserted cabin it's astounding <laughs> it really is um no I totally agree with you and when when she was called dyke multiple times I just got trauma of like oh I haven't heard that in a while it's been a while since somebody shouted that at me in school or on the street um so to see her like get her revenge is quite satisfying so we kind of discussed like at the start of this film there's like quite a bit of 
transphobic language used. Um, it, this film takes place five years after the first one, and there's a group of boys and a girl named Phoebe sitting around the campfire just telling ghost stories, and Camp Arawak comes up, and uh, they start to talk about the killings and what happened to the killer. Um, what did we think of this little throwback to Camp Arawak? Because we, we had to include it somehow. I think you definitely needed it. Yeah, especially, I mean, if it's five years after and the movie came out, oh, I guess it was exactly five years after. Okay, so <laughs> just like a brief synopsis. And yeah, the transphobic language, I mean, it's like a document to look at of like, how was transness spoken of in the 80s? And I just love the, the young man who is the son of a cop saying the doctors gave him a sex change and our parents' taxes paid for it. It's like, oh my God. It's like the most American sentence ever. Like, because <laughs> yeah. they, yes. they don't understand like universal health care. It's like our taxes paid for that. And it's like, it's life saving surgery, you asshole. Yep. Imagine trying to explain the NHS to that group. Hello. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're introduced to our head counselor, Angela, who in this film has been recast from Felissa Rose. Um, what do we think of Pamela Springsteen as um Angela in this film? Because obviously there is like a big difference in ages, um, but she's quite different from Felissa Rose's Angela to like Pamela Springsteen's Angela. They're very different. Yeah, I really enjoy Pamela Springsteen. I'm surprised. I mean, you can call her performance maybe like a little over the top or like a little bit too chipper, but I like what she does. And I see, I go to a lot of horror conventions and Felissa Rose is very much a fixture at those. She's really good friends with Kane Hodder, uh, who played Jason in the later uh, Friday the 13th films. And she's, she's very proud of, what the character of Angela has become. And I would just love to see, I mean, I don't know what Pamela does these days, but it'd be fantastic for them to get together because it is such an evolution of like Angela, very shy in the first one, very quiet. And then after her transition, she's just sort of this new bubbly person or her personality is kind of more uh, outgoing and I just love the fact that she's the head counselor. She's like, she's coming back to the camp world. And she's like, yep, here I am. I am a woman and you're going to listen to me. I am in control, which in the first one, she had no control. Everyone shit on her the whole time. And now she is in this authoritative role. Yeah, I really like the, the character arc for Angela in this film. I mean, in comparison to the first one, it's a night and day difference. And like, now that you've said, uh, Abigail, about like the comparison to Carrie, I can definitely see Carrie and Angela and also a little bit of um, Kathy Bates in Misery. You know, it's that, that, that chipperness and that pureness and it's like, kill the sinners kind of thing. I like that it's, that it's that creepiness behind her and when she's making those kills as well, she's still very chipper and like smile on her face. And I think that adds to the creepiness of it all. Yeah, she's very calm. And she yeah. always has, it's like a, she uses sort of like these one-liners. It's almost like a comic book villain of like, which after she kills a pothead, 
It's like, just say no to drugs. And like, <laughs> like it's very much 80s conservative superhero. But the fact that she's trans, she's in the queer community, it just makes it all the more, uh, it's kind of uh, subversive in a sense. She's, she's giving Reagan, but can I explain it? I don't know if she's just sort of, she's a complicated villain because you see sort of her problematic uh, thinking behind her kills and like not all of them are guilty. They're just smoking pot in the woods. Like they're just having a good time and she's killing them for it. But she's also this trans anti-hero, which in sort of like Carrie, sort of like Kathy Bates, you can't help but root for them. Yeah, definitely more than one dimensional. Which I feel like, so. I mean, sometimes it's nice to have a one-dimensional killer that's killing just for the sake of killing, and it's like an easy watch. But Angela's definitely not that. You know, there's there's a lot of layers to her. Absolutely. Um, Angela comes along and, like, kind of breaks up this chatter. She grabs Phoebe and she's just like, right, we're going back to the cabin. But the two of them get into a bit of an argument and we get our first kill of the movie when Angela um, hits Phoebe over the head with a log and then cuts out her tongue. Um, So there very much seems to be a correlation between the perceived crime let's call it, that Angela thinks these people have done and what she does to them. So because Phoebe was running her mouth about Angela and what she did at um, Camp Arawak, unbeknownst to Phoebe, um, that's who it's just talking about. Um, she cuts out her tongue and is like, you shouldn't talk shit about people, basically. Um, what do we think of that kind of aspect of how Angela takes action on these campers? I like it a lot. I know in the first one, it was more so, oh, if they were mean to her, she'd just kill them any which way, except for Judy with the curling iron. That was sort of, rem- that kind of reminded me of the cutting out of the tongue. But even the uh, the Schultz sisters, they were smoking in the woods. She set them on fire. Like, I, I, I like that aspect a lot. Yeah, it just adds to the drama of it all. Angela's very dramatic. And as a drama queen, I love that. <laughs> She is a drama queen. That's so right. <laughs> so the next day, uh, when the other campers who share the same bunk uh, notice that Phoebe isn't there, Angela starts this lie that will eventually catch up with her by the end of the film that Phoebe went home. Phoebe went home. Um, and the girls don't really think anything of it. Um, so as we were saying about Brooke and Jodie, uh, they're kind of next on Angela's hit list. Uh, she finds them like smoking weed and drinking alcohol and she kind of lets them away with it the first time. But later on, she finds them uh, hooking up, well, finds one of them hooking up with a boy and decides that the only thing she can do is uh, burn them alive, <laughs> which seems a bit harsh, but I don't know. I, like It kind of goes back to what you're saying Abigail's like I'm very pro-drugs but at this point in the 80s and Reaganism they were doing the whole like war on drugs thing which has been a massive failure because people are still doing them in the states more and more states are legalizing like marijuana use and I think through science we're finding more and more uh, uses for kind of hallucinogenic drugs and um, other narcotics like ecstasy and how they can help people with 
mental health problems so this war on drugs has been an absolute failure so it's funny that we have this like you were saying Abigail this trans character who is like the antithesis of anything to do with republicanism you see what's going on today um, and all the anti-trans laws but then trying to do like the good fight for republicanism and being very anti-drugs to the point that she burns two girls alive for smoking weed yeah exactly that's why i say it's kind of a perfect time capsule for the 80s right and it is very complicated and yeah the war on drugs was a failure there's so many people incarcerated for marijuana use and so it's like would angela agree with this would she be okay? <laughs> but if you watch the third one, she kind of gets, a, like I said earlier, she kind of gets tired. And so she's kind of a little bit more lax aside from, and you kind of see a switch from the Republicanism where she murders racists and uh, uh, homophobes, although she still murders quote unquote fornicators. But I really... I, lo- I love that scene and the say no to drugs and like like you said Lindsay and Abigail the juxtaposition is really quite interesting and quite ironic I also like as well you know with with Angela and her like repulsion to sex as well and fornicators and killing them I think that's quite interesting because and Abigail you can probably talk on this as well you know in history I think it's really in the 80s as well specifically trans women even still now trans women are sexualized to no end it's the same as lesbians like it's a lot of trans women are seen as sex objects or moving the plot through sex and desire and they're not really seen as anything else and to see Angela so against that I think it's quite interesting for the time yeah definitely and even today I mean the rate of trans women especially sex workers who are killed. And it's this yes. idea of sex for trans people can be dangerous because if they're with the wrong person and that person is extremely transphobic and it's jarring to them if uh, discover that they are with a trans person. And I mean, ever since the eighties, there's this one movie called Curse of the Queer Wolf. It's, I think it came around the same time as this and it is horrible but this man is with he's about to have sex with a woman and the woman says that she is trans and he immediately goes into this oh my god that's disgusting and he practically turns he turns violent and so this of this era in the 80s sex was always sort of risky for trans people and it still is there's just so much violence so next on angela's hit list is mayor so earlier in the film when we're introduced to everybody in the bank mayor um it's sleeping naked and she has her breasts exposed and um angela takes like great umbrage to this um some of the other girls do kind of mention like oh like i'd rather not see that but Angela particularly is aggrieved by this and asks that she wears a nightgown to bed but Mayor's like no I sleep naked I don't care and later on in the film the boys do a panty raid in the in their bunk and um, 
uh, Angela breaks that up so the girls retaliate with a jockstrap raid and Mare again exposes her breasts and Angela's really not happy about it um, there's something quite like nice about Mare and her like really positive attitude to her body I mean like obviously she's very attractive girl but um, I feel like certainly in the UK like very much taught to be like ashamed of our bodies and not show them off like I feel like whenever a holiday on the continent you know there's everybody has just like grown up with like being topless on the beach and stuff like that and a lot more comfortable with their bodies the changing rooms are a lot more like open structure whereas in the UK like everybody has a cubicle because like how dare you ever see anybody's naked body ever <laughs> other than your own because that would be so offensive I'm not sure what it's like in the US Abigail but it was like it was just really nice to see somebody just be so open about their body and I feel like a lot of younger people in the UK are trying to unpack that and like be a bit more open but it's definitely something that has been handed down to us from our mothers and grandmothers and so on to just kind of this is for you and your partner and nobody else um so yeah I kind of I hated that Mare was kept getting told to like cover herself up it's just like she's got all the same bits as everybody else in there just show them off if you want to that's so true and also it's quite interesting because like since since Covid started I've pretty much not worn a bra and I'll go out like I pretty much go out braless all the time now and being in the UK it's so funny how shocked people are just to the thought of nipples underneath a shirt and they're like how dare you and people genuinely look shocked and it's like oh get a grip of yourself I get told off all the time for not wearing a bra and I'm just like but why like if you actually look at the history of bras I'm like why the fuck would I want to wear this thing that has been made by men to tell me what my breasts should look like to everybody else when this is what they naturally look like and there's nothing wrong with that preach babes preach (laughs) yeah I'm in uh, Brooklyn New York and I used to be uh I used to live more upstate in New York and bras were sort of expected uh now that I'm in Brooklyn um it's definitely a 75 to 25 percent of women not wearing a bra and it is it has become very freeing (laughs) because I never experienced that before but I like in this movie it's sort of taking aim at just the patriarchal horror movie of the 80s is very like breasts they show breasts because young boys want to see these horror movies they want to see blood gore and they want to see uh nudity but with this one the characters especially mare there's just so much autonomy that she's exuding and like she she just wants to not wear a shirt yes i'm sure the makers of this movie were like okay yeah let's have a bunch of boobs because that's what people want to see but her character how it was written it's it's like as if her character wasn't written for men it was written for women and I found that very refreshing so as I said like Angela is not on board with this behavior at all she decides that like Mare has to go home um but on the ride home I don't know if there is like a switch in Angela's head that makes her go from like driving her home to murdering her but 
she eventually decides to uh, drill a hole literally into Mare's head with an electric drill. What like what did we think of this kill? I'm trying to think of if it has because you know like the drug users were burned. Uh, the mouthy girl got her tongue cut out. Do we know exactly why she decides to use a drill? I don't think so, but I was just thinking there, like, double meaning and things like that. Maybe because Mayor is so, like, body positive and it's very, I suppose maybe Angela sees her as the typical, like, dumb blonde that's using just her body and she's got no depth to her. Maybe that's the kind of, because we always have that trope in horror, don't we? Especially when somebody does, like, show their breasts or nudity especially in 80s and 70s films are kind of just seen as that blonde kind of like the, a, a femme fatale kind of thing so maybe maybe it's to do with that maybe she thinks like oh okay we'll use it <laughs> it works <laughs> yeah it works so Angela's like not super popular amongst the campers so some of them make a plan to try and scare her because they're just kind of over her <laughs> so Anthony and Judd make a plan to try and scare Angela dressed like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. However, Angela gets wind of this and she dresses up like Leatherface and she slashes Anthony's throat and then murders Judd with a chainsaw. So this is like our kind of like meta moment in the film. Um, like I feel like it already is very reminiscent of Friday the 13th part one uh, and seeing that the Freddy glove and the Jason mask it, and those were so popular in this time like they all came out in the 80s um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre like late 70s but these all would have been massive films in the 80s what like what do we think of this kill and um, the boys plan to try and scare Angela I love how they have to use like an off-brand Jason mask yeah. like it's not actual <laughs> and yeah so it's sort of this meta moment of this conglomeration of horror icons sort of I'm surprised people don't look to this as okay Angela is an 80s slasher she she's in league with Jason Freddie Leatherface um, and there's a great promotional shot for this movie where Pamela Springsteen just smiling in the middle of like the dead bodies next to her. They have the Freddy glove, I think, and chainsaw on the back. And it's a fantastic shot. But yeah, that kill was great. Especially, was this the first, her first murder of boys? I think, I think it so. was. And that's, that's one of the problems I have with the film is it's not equal like she kills a lot of women and a lot of the girls and the men are the men are equally bad they're like they're not great like this panty raid that's like reminiscent of like revenge of the nerds and it's so offensive like if that happened today those kids would be gone so i i appreciate the mixing of the genders <laughs> for uh murders i i love anytime we get meta in a horror and I love when horror references itself and it's so interesting with this as well because Sleepaway Camp is obviously it's taking the piss out of things like Friday the 13th, Freddy, Texas Chainsaw Massacre um so I, I like that they 
directly kind of spoof it almost because usually sometimes when you get those references it's a little bit more subtle whereas this is completely in your face like this is Jason Freddy you know and it's it's great I love it this is probably like my favorite scene in the movie honestly it, ma it makes my, my horror heart happy I wonder uh, if the more killing of the girls than the boys again speaks to that like republican attitude where like women are held more accountable for their actions than like men are um it's always like boys will be boys uh, whereas yeah. women are held up to a very high standard of like goodness and um, good behavior and like a lot of these girls like aren't really doing anything that bad to get what it is that's happening to them like phoebe just like told a told a story and you know um brooke and jody were drinking and you know a lot of teenagers do that and mayor just like flashed her breasts which are they're her breasts if she wants to flash them she can um so like none of these people have really done anything that bad and then the two boys are just playing a prank it's kind of more with the next person you're like okay maybe they deserved it but everybody up till here it's Angela holding them to an extremely high standard of behaviour and if they're not meeting it she decides that they don't deserve to live and that's I feel like there's a lot of attitudes towards women that way there's a double standard with how women have to behave and men have to behave. I mean you can see that even now um, in film and horror and even I, I don't know why I'm thinking politically but I don't know it's because the UK right now is in a fucking shambles with our politics. But like Lindsay, think about how Nicola Sturgeon was demonized last year, completely demonized in comparison to Boris Johnson when there was the during COVID and stuff, when she did one thing, not great, mind you, because she wasn't weird, but I don't know why, it's just reminded me of that, like, you know, even in British press. Yeah, very true. Like you could even think about the whole like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard thing. It's yeah. like they both did things that were very wrong, but she got the worst of it in the media, um, which doesn't seem very fair considering she's half his bloody age as well. Um, so yeah, it still happens all the time today as well as back then. Very much so. Yeah, and even, I mean, in the United States, you saw the election of Donald Trump uh, and the person against him was Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton isn't, I mean, she's she's good. She's very experienced. She has her problems too, but anything can spew out of his mouth. And but she had those emails, you know. And we we hold these really uh, prominent women to such high standards, and the men can just skate by, or we just overlook it, which I feel like Angela did with like uh, little boys who were taking naked pictures of all the girls did she ever go after them no I don't think she did and I'm sure there's a point in the film as well where she's like they're taking pictures and she never does anything about it I think they have pictures of her as well which you think would yeah. be number one reason to go after them but she doesn't the next person that Angela goes after is Ali. And as I kind of alluded to before, she's perhaps like one of the few people who like really deserves it. Um, Ali is a bit of a bully in the camp. Um, she's just kind of horrible to everybody. 
but uh, she's particularly horrible to Molly, who is someone that Angela is quite close to. Um, there's like a boy in the camp that Molly fancies and Ali goes out of her way to get him to fancy her. I think she sleeps with him a bit later on as well and she doesn't even like him. She's just you doing it to wind Molly up, basically. Um, so Angela sets a trap for Ali and leads her down towards the outhouse and drowns her in the outhouse toilet and there's lots of poo and like urine and leeches down there and Angela really goes to Riley she really does not like this girl and what do we think of Ali and what do we think of her death there's also the leeches as well for like extra extra drama there I think this is like probably the most savage death well, I mean being burned alive is also probably not nice but like I think like she is genuinely a pretty horrible human being um you know she's doing things really out of malice and I think Angela has that vengefulness specifically for her b- because you know she's just being horrible for the sake of being horrible so I mean I don't know if it justifies that like getting killed but I mean probably the most just one of the most justifiable deaths in this film and I do like this kill because it is so brutal and you can just imagine how horrific that would be. Oh, the smell, guts. Yeah, she she talked too much shit and she was taken to the outhouse. <laughs> but yeah, she's just a horrible person. And I feel like Angela, I mean, although, uh, what is her name? Allie, right? She calls Angela slurs all the time. And aside from that, I feel like Angela went after her as sort of, she's protecting Molly. She sees herself in Molly, you know, kind of a little bit meeker, quieter camp uh, camp counselor. And I think she sees herself in her. And at least for me, I know growing up as queer, it I would have loved if someone looked out for me, uh, if I was being bullied and I, I think Angela is sort of protecting her. She'd be like, why didn't anyone protect me? I'm not going to repeat the cycle and not protect anyone else based on what I went through. So I'm going to, I'm going to look out for this girl because she needs someone. And so in that sense, I saw Angela as sort of a hero, like, damn, I wish I had someone looking out for me too. And that's what she's doing. Yeah. You can kind of see the humanity in her then as well. Like, you know, she does care about other people. Yeah, some people. She likes some people. (laughs) So the next two deaths happen in quite quick succession. So um, Angela goes back to the bunks and Demi's there and she's talking about how she, like, she phoned Phoebe's, um, like, family just so that she could talk to her. And her family says that she's still at camp which thinks is a bit weird so then she goes on to phone Brooke and Jodie's family to speak to them and again she's told that they're still at camp when Demi's like you've told me that they're at home so like I'm a bit confused as to what's happened to them and this is where Angela's like thinking oh like my number's up like I'm about to get caught so unfortunately, Demi has to bite the dust so that Angela can keep her secret and like can 
continue killing these uh, campers that she does not deem as being well behaved. Um, and then not long after that, Leah comes in to, uh, to find Demi's dead body. So Angela also has to take care of her as well by stabbing Leah to death. Um, so I, so that again, her secret does not get out. Throughout this film, I've been like fully behind Angela, but I do find these ones a bit difficult because these girls also haven't really done anything wrong. Um, but they just kill. They're just like caught in the crossfire, really. Um, like, what do we think of Demi and Leah's deaths? Yeah, I think towards the end, it was just like, oh yikes, gotta protect my secret. Boom, like she she just gets desperate at the end because yeah like you said her her number's up she needs to reckon with what she's done she's not caught really well by other campers but or uh camp counselors but at the end she just kind of moves on and so it's like oh she's out in the world like killing willingly yeah you can see the anxiety building up in her because being able to cover up one murder is one thing but the amount of bodies this gal has behind her now, it's a bit hard to, you know, be sneaky. Um, but it's that desperation, isn't it? To try and hide it. So she's just like, it's unfortunately for these girls, it's wrong place, wrong time. So um, obviously Angela's been covering her tracks by telling people that she's been sending these people home, whether it's for bad behaviour or just because they're homesick. And uh, she's already been told by Uncle John, who like runs the camp, you can't do that. You really have to speak to me or TC before you send somebody home. But of course, Angela's getting through these bodies so quickly that this is the only explanation she can come up with. And Uncle John fires her from the camp, which Angela is completely distraught at because I don't know if it's that she loves working at the camp or if she just wants to kill people, but she's distraught that her time at a Camp Rolling Hills maybe over um, quicker than she wants it to. So Molly and Sean uh, like try and cheer Angela up. One thing I'll never understand about the scene is why Angela took them to where like the, the outhouse is. And we later find that this is where she's hiding all the bodies because this is what gets her like found out by Sean and Molly um what do we what do you guys think of this plan that Angela's like brought them out here to cheer her up um and it kind of backfires pretty quickly yeah it's definitely an odd choice (laughs) um this scene sort of reminded me of like the confession of Pamela Voorhees because she's she doesn't think she did anything wrong per se and that's Pamela, like Pamela was killing these innocent counselors who had nothing to do with her son's death. And here's Angela like, oh, look at all of like, look at what I've done. And it's like, what's your, what's your end game? <laughs> like, what, like you didn't want to be caught. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection there, but I can definitely see that because in her own mind, she's justified each of these killings because in her mind, these people are very bad people and they deserve it for X, Y, Z reasons. So maybe it is just that she doesn't want to get caught, but she also has no fear because she's like, I've not done anything wrong because I think I've done right by doing this. And I'm like cleansing the world of sinners and fornicators and potheads and all this kind of stuff. So maybe it's just that kind of, I don't want to get caught, but I also have no fear if somebody finds them because I did nothing wrong. 
So Angela, like not wanting our secret to get be found out, she ties the pair of them up in this like outhouse cabin thing with all the other dead bodies. The way they like dress this scene, it looks absolutely disgusting. Like I think they did a really good job here. You could see the kind of I don't know if bodies decompose that quickly, but you can kind of see them like decomposing and all the flies, and I think it's like really well done. Um, so TC learns of the whereabouts of Molly and Sean and he tries to save them but Angela throws battery acid in his face and kills him what like we've not spoke about TC an awful lot like what do we think of him as like a camp counsellor he's kind of like the second in command and what do we think of the way Angela takes care of him I found it kind of odd because I mean TC was always very nice to her and like flirted with her like I think he had a crush on her and the fact that she just does away with that so quickly it's like she's like I don't like I don't care if you like me I don't care like that's inconsequential like if you're in my way you're out yeah I couldn't agree I couldn't agree with you more there I don't think it's also that scene is really like vile and disgusting and considering as well for the, the 80s I think it's like pretty good in terms of effects and stuff like that I think this is pretty low budget as well so um I have to give them their due I did like that scene it makes me a bit queasy <laughs> the use of the practical effects it's very similar to Evil Dead the original yeah. Evil Dead right it's definitely it makes it more fun to watch and there are a lot of horror movies of that time that like the kill is done off screen um, but here it's right in your face. Like even when she drills into the girl's head, the camera's kind of like bloody and all that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's a visual treat. So back in the cabin, um, like Angela is having a bit of a tete-a-tete with um, Sean and Molly. Uh, Sean, we earlier in the film states that he is the son of a police officer and this police officer specifically was on the case of the murders at Camp Arawak so Sean has a little bit of an insight into that and as they're talking Sean realizes that the killer was also called Angela but it was Angela Baker not Angela Johnson and then Angela talks about how she changed her name um she talks about everything that happened to her at the um, facility that she was at after the murders, the electroshock therapy. Um, She had gender-affirming surgery, but they don't refer to it in such nice terms. Um, Like, what do we think of this revelation and Angela kind of, like, going through, like, how hard her life has been over the past five years? I thought that was a good addition, especially since we see so many other films with transgender villains where it is not the villains themselves talking about their trauma, but it's other people. So Hannibal Lecter talking about Buffalo Bill and we never hear from him. And well, well, Buffalo Bill is not actually trans, but you know, it's that same vein. And even in Dress to Kill by De Palma, it's from a psychiatrist's point of view. We never hear it from the person and what they went through. So I think that's good. However, it does perpetuate this negative stereotype that 
persists in film of a mentally ill, uh, traumatized transgender person just wreaking havoc. Yeah, definitely. And even I was just thinking that you're so right with Buffalo Bill and Just to Kill, even in like Psycho as well, that little monologue at the end from the psychiatrist, that very problematic um, like five minutes that he goes off on. I think it's, it is important that they show what Angela highlights, that the trauma that she's been through, um, everything that she had to go through from like her therapy and going through electroshock therapy. It just highlights that, you know, in the 80s, even now, um, you know, some people see transness as being a mental illness. I mean, look at the UK, they still haven't banned trans conversion therapy, but they banned every other form of conversion therapy. So it just shows how the UK views trans people, which is absolutely awful. So, I mean, it's it's just interesting to see, you know, a film that's like in the 80s, 30, 40 years ago, this kind of message, this view of trans people, it's it's still it's still there. But no, I think it was important for her to highlight everything that she'd she'd been through. Because like you said, when we see trans villains, we don't usually hear about their struggle and even just the process. You know, if somebody wants to medically transition, how hard that is and how hard it even still is. I know I keep speaking about the UK perspective, but I mean, even getting access to the gender clinic, I mean, some waiting lists are like six, seven years and the amount of trauma that people have to go through just to be who they are. It's, it's awful. Yeah. And even um, with In Silence of the Lambs, with Buffalo Bill, there was screening processes before you can surgically transition. Um, where they said like, oh, he was rejected because he showed childhood trauma and he was rejected because maybe depression was in the mix, but it's like the hurdles that you have to go through, first of all, you're in a world that is not, is perpetually against you. There's gonna be trauma there. And if you're rejected on that basis, it's like, well, what do you want me to do? Like you caused this trauma and I'm trying to rectify it by being who I am and you just get shut down. And um, so after Sean reveals that he has figured out who Angela is, she decapitates him. Um, and the big, like, I love special effects. The big blood spurt made me so happy that it like comes out of his neck um, <laughs> when she cuts his head off. Um, it like reminds me of Kill Bill. And I remember when I was watching that when I was younger, I was like, is that real? Is that how, is that what happens? Is that, <laughs> is that how it happens? Pause the film. I have a question. Can someone please answer it? Is that what happens? <laughs> and it, everybody just ignored me because I probably should not have been watching that film in the first place. But um, yeah, I love blood spurry things. They make me very happy. Um, what did you think of Sean's death? I do love when we get a little bit of a blood spur. I mean, we'll be seeing that in the Evil Dead as well. I like things that are extra bloody. So it was nice. It was nice to to have that because even though some of the deaths are gory, they're not not all of them are. I mean, even like the, the stabbing's pretty tame. The burning, you know, we kind of see the burnt corpse out after. You don't really see the flesh coming off or anything. And then with the, the outhouse death, you know, and nothing's too bloody and gory. But this was, so I liked it. Yeah, same here. Nothing new to add about that. <laughs> so Angela later leaves the cabin. Molly's still there tied up, but she manages to free herself. 
um, when Angela comes back, she knocks, um, Molly knocks her out and makes her escape. But after a big chase through the woods, Molly falls. We see her like slip over what looks like a bit of a cliff. And we just assume that she's died. Um, I remember like earlier when I was watching this kind of being like, Angela, catch her because they're supposed to, well, Angela's supposed to have like a lot of love for her like she basically kills Ali for her and she just kind of lets her fall and I was like really hoping that she would like save her um what do you guys think about that I'd have loved to see them walk together in the sunset and have a queer ending <laughs> I think it shows that for Angela even if you you can be her best friend and you do one thing wrong and you're out like she'll have no sympathy if you go against her moral code she will end you that's so true what you say about her moral code and kind of like the following scene after this it kind of made me like Angela again because she's not she doesn't discriminate so she hitchhikes and ends up getting a lift with this like older woman um who's just like smoking and she's um being a bit vulgar or whatever and Angela just clearly has zero tolerance for anybody because then she takes this woman out as well. Even though this woman was like well, t- fully willing to help her, give her a lift. Like, well, nowadays, it's maybe a bit different in the 80s, but not a lot of people pick up hitchhikers nowadays um, for their own safety. But this woman saw this vulnerable girl, picked her up, but she wasn't speaking in a way that Angela approved of. So Angela killed her. Um, but I quite like it because it's true to Angela. She's not just killing these kids because they're kids. She's killing them because they don't fit her like worldview. So it's like she's been true to herself the whole time. Oh yeah, she's she's just ruthless, and that's why I feel that she's in league with Jason Voorhees because uh, Jason definitely doesn't discriminate. He will. I mean, he doesn't really have a reason, unlike Angela, but it's sort of like that in the sort of camp atmosphere. And so she's, if Jason and Angela met in the woods, I think she has a chance. I agree. (laughs) Not a a strong one, but she's more, um, I can't figure out the word, but she's more uh, wily, I would say. Mm. Jason's a little bit more stiff. Like Angela has a chance. So um, Angela just, basically steals this car after killing this woman she's driving along and we find that molly like didn't die she was just knocked unconscious she makes her way out of the woods she flags down this truck um as someone to try and get her out of here and then realizes it's angela behind the wheel of the car and just starts screaming her head off and that's the end of the film um i really like this ending um just because you think Molly thinks her nightmare's over and here comes Angela. I love how ambiguous it is. Like, we don't know what happens to Molly. I think you find out by the third one what happens to her. But at the end of this one, we don't know what happens to her. Um, And I like that ambiguity. I like being able to fill in the blanks for myself and kind of make up my own story for what happens between them. Also, that last line that Angela has is amazing. Just, howdy, partner. <laughs> and then the scream. I fucking love it. It's so cheesy. It's so camp, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So pure. <laughs> um, 
yeah and that's it that's the end of the film um does anybody have anything that they want to say about the film before we get into box office and ratings i did want to touch upon the new movie that's coming out from blumhouse uh called they slash them oh yeah yes yeah where i mean it centers around kids at a conversion therapy camp and um I pulled a quote from the writer, I can't remember writer or director, but he says, they slash them has been germinating within me my whole life. I've loved horror movies as long as I can remember. I think because monsters represent the other. And as a gay kid, I felt a powerful sense of kinship with those characters who were different, outlawed or forbidden. And he goes on to say, I wanted to make a movie that celebrates queerness with characters that I never saw when I was growing up. When people walk away from the movie, I hope they're going to remember the incredible love that these kids have for each other and how that love needs to be protected and celebrated. And just how far the camp slasher genre has come that now we're in the 80s, we had a transgender woman slasher, and now there's gonna be non-binary representation at this camp, trans representation, And it's going to be more about a banding together of these queer kids, trans kids against, I don't know who the antagonist is, but I'm sure it has something to do with the counselors or something like that. So I'm wondering if Angela somehow paved the way. And I wonder if Angela was sort of in the back of the mind of the writers, directors, and maybe even some of the cast. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I actually completely forgot that film was coming out, but see if it's just these queer kids killing the counselors, I'll be quite happy because honestly, conversion therapy is so fucking gross that I'd just be quite happy to see these people get taken out one by one in increasingly more horrible ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly so. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I've been so excited for this film since I first heard about it, especially somebody that is non-binary and we have no representation in media, pretty much. Um, to have a film like this I hadn't thought about Sleepaway Camp until you mentioned it there but it'll be interesting to see if it has those influences if you know Angela's paved the way Sleepaway Camp walked so they then could run Um, because when I first heard about it I was immediately thinking about um, But I'm a Cheerleader which is like probably my favourite queer film of all time I really hope they go down that kind of like campy like as wholesome and happy as you can be in a conversion therapy camp you know what I mean and maybe take that kind of slant on it with lots of gore so yeah I'm excited for it um so in terms of box office I find it really difficult to find what this film took in the last film was like a roaring success um sleepaway camp it was like 350k budget and it made like 11 million dollars back so absolutely incredible this one had a slightly bigger budget of 465k but i i couldn't find anywhere what it took in at the box office so you just have to fill in those blanks yourself i'm sorry <laughs> well i believe that this might have gone straight to video all right well that'll and explain it, it then yeah and same with the third one i mean I collect uh, VHS tapes of horror movies and Sleepaway Camp 1, 2, and 3 are extremely rare and very expensive. So it goes to show that a lot of these 
horror franchises, they built themselves off of video sales. Hmm. And especially during this era, there was just a boom of video rentals, uh, VCRs, all that kind of stuff. So people can watch them at home. And it kind of lent itself to more subversive cinema that maybe wouldn't have been released in a mainstream theater or not able to. And so maybe that is a testament to, um, as to why sort of this dialogue about being trans was able to exist because maybe a major studio didn't want to buy it. And they're like, okay, let's, let's release it on video and see how it goes. And I'm, I'm wondering um, if there is like video rental statistics for these types of films. Yeah, I wish there's just a bit more of that actually, because I find that happens a lot when we're looking up um, box office and ratings. Like sometimes the the box office is either we can't find it or it's really, really low. And I'm like, this is an iconic film though. So we had those video sale figures or like video rental, DVD rental figures, it would, it would put the pieces together a bit better because this is probably one of those films that people would be like, pick up at the video rental store rather than going to the cinema if it wasn't at the cinema. Yeah, also about this film as well. If anyone's listening to this and being like, oh, I really want to watch this now, it's very hard to find on streaming or renting. Like, I'll quite happily rent a film. I couldn't find this anywhere. Like, I ended up finding, like, a bootleg version on YouTube that I watched. That's how I watched it as well, because I couldn't find it anywhere. Which is really sad because I feel like we're being deprived if we can't watch this on streaming or on like rental services either. Um, I don't know what it's like in the US. I know it can be different in different countries, but yeah, I couldn't find this anywhere. Yeah, I watched this one and the sequel on, I think it's Tubi. Do you guys have Tubi in the UK? I'm not sure. Like I've heard other people talking about it. Maybe I should look it up. Okay. I mean, maybe there's differences like, Netflix UK and Netflix US um but yeah very hard to find I know that I'm not sure if it was there's some blu-ray release of it that happened maybe a few years ago but even those are very expensive I got mine like someone burned a copy and gave it to me because I I couldn't find it anywhere so that was that was how I first got it. So it's kind of a little bit of a, an, an underground. It's kind of an experience to try and find these films, which can be fun enough themselves because you're thinking like, oh my God, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be good? Yeah. And with this one, I would say good, but definitely fun to watch. <laughs> um, so let's get into ratings. So IMDb rated this a 5.5 out of 10. The Rotten Tomatoes critics rated it a 50% and the audience a 41%. But I don't care about these stiffy old critics and what they think about the film. Um, I want to know what you guys think of the film. So Abigail, what would you rate Sleepaway Camp 2 Unhappy Campers out of 10? I kind of agree with the statistics that came up. I'm surprised they were that high. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say I would probably give it 5.3. Okay. <laughs> Very specific. Yes. Lucy, what do you rate Sleepaway Camp 2 out of 10? I was humming and haying about it because I did enjoy it. Is it a good film? Not necessarily, but I think it's a really important film and it's a really important film for queer horror. So I'm going to give it 
a six out of ten, but it's a happy, wholesome, please go watch this film, six out of ten. Because it's not it's not the best, but it's still enjoyable, and I would still recommend folks watch it. Yeah, like I was kind of in that boat as well. Like I enjoy it, but it's it's not good. Like the acting is a bit questionable at times, but I'm so behind Angela. I think I've like I watched the first and second one back to back. I'm so behind Angela. I really want to get into the rest of this franchise now. So I, I yeah, I think I'm gonna go with Lucy and give it a six out of ten as well. Um, but as much as that's kind of on the low side, do really recommend people watch it because it is just quintessential 80s fun, I think. But that being said, that's movie one over and done with. Um, we're going to get into The Evil Dead now. Um, Lucy's going to take us through that. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected through this book is sure to come calling for me. <laughs> your girlfriend, you take care of her. So the plot for The Evil Dead is as follows. Five friends travel to a cabin in the woods where they unknowingly release flesh-possessing demons. This film was released in 1981. The cast includes the iconic Bruce Campbell, Ellen Sandwise and Richard Damanapour. This was directed by Sam Raimi, who has directed so many fucking things. We've got this list, so I'm just trying to see, but obviously... I just put down everything. <laughs> I was like, it's all so good. <laughs> it is. I, if you don't I love Sam Raimi. Like... I really dread the day if anything comes out really problematic about this man because I love him so much, but including the Evil Dead franchise, um, Sam Raimi's also been involved in Drag Me to Hell, the TV series Ash versus the Evil Dead, um, a big part of my gay awakening, which was Xena, Warrior Princess, Doctor Strange, and Multiverse of Madness. This was also written by Sam Raimi as well. There's some really interesting backstory behind the Evil Dead. So Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were like, best friends in high school I kind of like to think of them as like the horror version of um if anyone's really into stoner movies like Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes they were big you know big friends before they started things like Clerks and um you know Jane Silent Bob Strike Back and all these kinds of things I feel like Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell are a, a package so to speak 
and you can tell this film is really low budget they had like next to no money for this um they did a lot of short films when they were younger and this is based on it's called something in the woods i think there's a short film that they did before they did the evil dead which gave them the initial money for the film which was like 90k but they ran out of money like halfway through filming this so like they got loans I think like Bruce Campbell like put his house up for sale or something like that like they were both like really invested in this so you can tell it's a real passion project now is it my like I said I I'm, I love Evil Dead um I don't think the original is the best but it does start off the franchise you know it starts off everything you know because after this we have two other films in the trilogy and then we have the reboot we're getting evil dead rises there's the tv series there's the video games there's the comics it's like absolutely massive abigail are you a big fan of the evil dead franchise as well i am and i'm actually one of those rare people who feel the original is better than evil dead 2 um just i think because of how diy it is and pretty straightforward yeah, big fan of the original number two. I am not familiar with, I only saw like 20% of Army of Darkness, but I loved the remake. I saw the remake in theaters and it was such a cool experience. And it's it's one of my favorite horror movies. I feel like Mia is such an underrated final girl. I think like Evil Dead 2013, in my opinion anyway, probably the best remake of a franchise that we've had so far. Now, Lindsay, you hear me bound on about Evil Dead every five fucking minutes. <laughs> what do you think of the series? And are you um, a fan? Like, have you watched the trilogy or like the TV show or anything like that? I'm such a noob. Like, I just go between this and the remake all the time. <laughs> I've never gone any further and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, like, I grew up on the Spider-Man trilogy, so it's not like I don't have a lot of love for Sam Raimi and his work. Um, but yeah, I, I switch between this and the remake because I bloody love the remake as well. I definitely recommend the TV series. Um, it's got, like, three seasons. It's on Netflix. That's actually how I, like, properly got into The Evil Dead. Um, I'd watched the original. I hadn't watched the sequel, which some people argue is a reboot of the original, I personally think it's like a mix of both, but I watched the TV series and Bruce Campbell was so fucking funny in it. It is the most ridiculous thing you've ever watched in your life. And then I was like, I have to watch the rest of these films. That's how it happened. <laughs> the pair of them working together, like, because I recently revisited all the Spider-Man films and the ones with that are Sam Raimi directed, Bruce Campbell's in every single one of them in a different cameo and they're all so funny and in his cameo in the Multiverse of Madness as well it's just hilarious and Bruce Campbell gets the end credit scene because of course he would because Sam Raimi's directing it and that is just such a good thing to do with his friend and it's so funny and I just I love them working together and I really love this film as well um, like you don't ex you don't expect at the start that Ash is really going to be the star, but the things that him and Sam Raimi do together to make this film as and this franchise as iconic as it is are I think are just genius. Definitely, and it's really interesting because in the original scripting they were going to kill Ash off after the first film because they weren't sure if they were going to get like a second one and a third one because. I mean, they they had to beg people to screen this. They were handing it out to everyone, like, please watch our film, because it was their first feature. 
so I'm so glad they didn't because Ash is obviously so iconic and it's quite interesting like I mean the, the working conditions behind the original I mean I really feel for them all because they actually did work in a cabin that had no electricity no running water they slept there like it was rough that sounds like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre like all over again it is though it actually is <laughs> but we'll get into the plot so the Evil Dead focuses on five Michigan State University students. As we mentioned, there's Ash Williams, there's his girlfriend, Linda, and they're accompanied by Ash's sister, Cheryl, and their friend, Scotty, and his girlfriend, Shelley. So they're venturing into the Tennessee Hills to vacation in an isolated cabin for their spring break. But they soon run into trouble, um, just avoiding a motorist. They nearly have a crash. And then they have like a big scare near a bridge where the cabin begins to collapse as they cross. And then that night we have Cheryl drawing like a drawing a clock and it's like it's almost as if she's like possessed well she is and her her hand becomes like this mysterious like pale entity causing her to draw a picture that looks like a deformed evil face but she doesn't mention this to anyone in the group she's just like oh it's just my imagination and that's kind of like the start of the film so what do we think of our group of uh five friends obviously ash is like a standout but is there anyone else that you two particularly like out of the group you said cheryl is that her name yeah okay yes i like cheryl just like she's so hysterical and like i mean i feel for her like she's being possessed like out of nowhere like is it ever discussed why she was sort of chosen or it just happened I think it just happened it was like luck of the draw there's not really any explanation anywhere and I've not seen anything where they've said this is the reason why but there could right. be okay so yeah I I really enjoy Cheryl and um I found the the guy friend very annoying <laughs> but I mean I thought it was a good cast at the start of this film like really for a good chunk up until like Cheryl turns I'm like, she's the only person with any bloody sense here, but nobody listens to her because she's so, like, hysterical, like, she seems, like, very much, like, runs a bit anxious, and nobody listens to her, like, they go over the bridge and she's just like, no, like, this doesn't seem safe, they go to the cabin and she's like, I'm not fucking staying here, and again, nobody listens, and there's, like, a few other bitties like that, oh, with the cellar, she's like, don't go down there, they go down there it's like she's the only one with any bloody sense but because she is run so anxious they just think she's being anxious when in actual fact she's the only person there with two brain cells struck together to know like not to get into any trouble and unfortunately she is the first one to turn as well so uh, it makes me upset for her um yeah <laughs> Well, you see, as we've said time and time again, Lindsay, this is what happens when people don't listen to women. You die. And shit <laughs> hits the fan. So it's your own fault. And I feel bad. Like, she's the fifth wheel. Like, yeah. Oh, and obviously no one's going to listen to her because the two couples are doing their own thing. And she's just like, okay, I'm just going to become possessed and draw this art. <laughs> she's just doing art. <laughs> She's like, I've got time, I've got nobody here. I'm just going to entertain myself. So, fair play. <laughs> so, after this, um, mentioned about the trap door to the cellar, it mysteriously flies open whilst they're having dinner. Cheryl, as we mentioned, is the only one that actually is saying, 
there's some ooky spooky things going on here. Nobody else seems arsed about it. Ash and Scotty go down to investigate and they find the Book of the Dead. Uh, this film was originally supposed to be called Book of the Dead, but then they decided Evil Dead. I can't remember why, but I think they did some test screenings and they were like, oh, it's... I can't remember why. It's some, something about, I don't know. They find a tape recording of incantations and of course they play it. And you're just thinking to yourself, why did you do that? You open in this book, Book of the Dead. It's like, no, no, but of course they fucking do it. Um, and this, unbeknownst to them, unleashes evil demons and spirits. As I said, the group is unaware of this, but Cheryl becomes hysterical when a tree crashes through the window. She decides to to go to her room. What do we think of like the whole setup of this, of this is how the demons get freed out? Are you also shouting at your TV? Like why the men in this being such bloody idiots, <laughs> opening things they shouldn't. Yeah, it's very much like yelling at the screen, like stop, why? Like, and no one listens to Cheryl and she's like, shut it off. Like she knows that this is evil. And I, I do, one thing I like about the franchise is the deadites they're they're kind of because they're demons they're like ghosts they're like it's very vague and i kind of like that it's not concrete as to what they are why they are and it kind of adds to the mystique of evil dead yeah because they kind of look like zombies a little bit as well especially in the first one it kind of gives me zombie vibes i don't know if you agree with that Lindsay. because i mean i mean the effects in this one are it's it's a bit questionable the makeup's a bit questionable but they didn't have much of a budget yeah you do get a bit like zombie vibes um, from the makeup and yet the special effects like aren't some of them are really good some of them like aren't so great but I don't think it's like massively offensive sometimes you watch films and the special effects are so terrible it just really takes you out of it whereas this I didn't really feel like it took me out of it too much but um yes again Cheryl the only one with any sense tell them turn this bloody tape off and do they do they buggery and and then <laughs> look what happens to her she she runs out of the house hysterical and then that fucking tree thing gets her and oh it gives me the boat like in the remake and in this one when the branch goes inside of her. So we will be speaking about that shortly because there is a lot to discuss there. So later hearing voices, um, Cheryl decides, as we mentioned, to go out and investigate. She's alone away from the safety of the cabin and she's attacked and yeah, essentially raped by this demonically possessed tree. Now, even when this came out, I remember the, well, not I remember, I wasn't born in the 80s, but research that I saw before um, recording, there was a lot of backlash. And Sam Raimi has since said that he regrets doing that, like saying like, okay, this wasn't a great scene to have. And then the actress that plays Cheryl, she did an interview, I think like two years ago, and people were asking her about this scene. Apparently in the original script, it wasn't supposed to be sexual is that but I think they were pushed especially because of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Freddy and the whole like era of slashers of the 80s they wanted a lot of shock value not that that makes what happened okay but I feel like in the remake even though they still have that scene it's done with a little bit more grace than this one because I mean this is really vulgar in my opinion it's it's really like they show a lot that they shouldn't be I know it's just like one thing but it's the way that the tree just wraps around her ankles and spreads her legs apart I think that's what takes it that bit 
more uncomfortable because it does make me feel very uncomfortable because I think well any obviously anybody can be raped um that is like your worst nightmare having like no control over your body and someone ripping your legs apart and inserting something into you it's like it's not a very nice thing to imagine whereas I don't I don't think that happens in the remake does it no I mean there's just this one little difference that does just like ramp up that uncomfortability definitely Abigail what do you think of this scene yeah whenever I see it it makes me uneasy I'm I get very uh uncomfortable with uh rape scenes in horror movies they just I don't find them necessary and a lot of them are very graphic and how you were saying Lindsay the pulling of her legs and she's just resisting and it's it's so hard to watch and I didn't know that they have since regretted putting that scene but I wonder what they would have done in its place because in the first place I don't quite understand why she has to be raped to be possessed because that doesn't happen to everyone else. It just happens to her. And I don't quite understand. I've never understood. Like they could have put it down her throat or something instead. And that's still like really gross and like uncomfortable, but it's not like on the same level as a rape. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it feels like it's there for the sake of it. And I mean, we've only spoken about one rape revenge film so far on the podcast, I think. And for good reason, we tend to tend to avoid it. Um, I know some of the, I mean, the one we watched, which was Revenge, I feel like was was a good film, as good as it can be when speaking about that kind of subject matter. But, you know, if they had, if they replaced the tree with a person, that would never have, that would never fly. That would have been a rape revenge film. So it's like, just because it's a tree doesn't mean it's not traumatizing and, you know, subjecting Cheryl to such unnecessary trauma. And it is, it's like, if they cut those bits out where it's like the ankles and the legs being spread spread apart, it's just, they, they didn't have to do that. So that's my my only gripe with this film, but it's still, yeah, it's it's not good. So after she's been possessed by the trees, Cheryl does manage to escape. And she's obviously in absolute hysterics. You know, she's gone through one of the most traumatizing things that could ever happen to you. And nobody believes her as it always fucking happens. I really wish that she survived to the end and was just like, fuck all y'all, you didn't listen to me. And then they all, as much as I love Ash, that would have been satisfying. But Ash agrees to drive her to town where she can find a place to stay for the night. She's like, I am absolutely not staying in this cabin. After all this, fuck no. Um, however, they find that the only bridge that connects the cabin to everywhere else in the world has been destroyed. So back at the cabin, whilst the girls are playing cards, this is where we see our first dead night. And it's Cheryl becoming possessed, telling them that demons will kill them. Now, this scene gives me the ick, because I don't know anything with ankles, but I hate it. She stabs Linda in the ankle with a pencil. And I'm just, I don't know about you two, but anything with ankles. I think there was a film we watched recently, Lindsay, where somebody had their ankles slashed. That gave me the fear. Oh, yeah. I think that was, like, in a hostel. And then, like, yeah. Oh. Oh gross but um yeah I quite like the special effect here like you kind of see like the skin stretching and stuff and it's very much like if you've like fucked your ankle like it's going to be very difficult for you to get away so it was kind of clever of the deadite to do that as well yeah and the fact that it was a pencil like I don't know like a really sharpened pencil like you think about like when you were in grade school like oh be careful because that could go like you could stab yourself 
essentially if you fall on a really sharp pencil so it's like oh but yeah I mean I I get very not queasy but it's very like oh like anything with limbs or uh joints and it it just freaks me out so in that sense I found it very effective even with the practical effects I thought it was great no it was great and I have to like really give Cheryl and Linda their due because as deadites I think their acting is really good in this like they're so hysterical especially Cheryl like as she's possessed all the giggling all the like the sassy talk and like the looks from the cellar and things like that I think like they kind of steal the show in some points of this I know everyone talks about Ash but I feel like the acting from them too is really really good Scotty I'm not arsed on you I mean, there's a bit later when he was just like, I'm going to leave the cabin and leave everybody on their own. So I'm like, no, no, no sympathy for you. So after this, um, stabs Linda in the ankle and Scotty locks Cheryl in the cellar. And then Shelly's the next to become possessed. So she attacks Scotty, who eventually dismembers her with an axe. They bury her and Scotty is obviously very shaken by her death, leaves to find an alternative trail through the woods. Checking on Linda, Ash discovers that obviously she's also become possessed, but she doesn't make an attempt to attack him, which is quite interesting. The way they play my games with Ash is quite fun. Um, Scotty returns, but he's suffered from grave injuries from the trees. And before losing consciousness, he tells Ash that an alternative trail does not, does exist. And then we get this scene, which is quite fun, where Linda and Cheryl unsuccessfully attempt to deceive Ash into believing they're no longer possessed so it shows that they can they can come in and out of possession a little bit as well what do we think of this scene because I think this is when I feel like the first half an hour is maybe a little bit slow but then once we get the possessions we really do get into that campy gory horrorness I don't know what you two think of these scenes yeah I love the mind games that they play on him and how creepy would it be to walk into a room and someone's just sitting cross-legged on the floor laughing and saying, we're gonna get you. I'm like, hell no, I'm out. I am out. Yeah, and how they can go back and forth between being possessed. Well, I'm sure even when she's crying and not like physically possessed, she's still like mentally possessed, um, which I thought was cool. It was a cool addition. Yeah, like Deadite Linda is my favourite because like Cheryl is a Deadite and Scott is a Deadite is what you're expecting but Cheryl is so creepy like Abigail's saying in the way she's just sitting with this very childlike laugh saying we're gonna get you, we're gonna get you and you know her face kind of is like in clown makeup for whatever reason and it's so weird and creepy and the way she just switches from Deadite like back to Linda and trying to fuck with Ash's head it's like it's really interesting uh, and it's not what you kind of expect I guess from like kind of like demon possession because we've seen Cheryl looking all gross and we can see Scott looking all gross but she's so different from everybody else Uh, and I think it brings like an interesting angle to like Ash's final boy story yeah definitely and I think is it not Linda that levitates at one point one of the deadites levitates and it very much gives like an exorcist kind of feel I feel like the deadites are a little bit inspired by the exorcist um a little bit of everything to be honest as you kind of said before Abigail and the fact that like 
they can change from their possessed look back to what they normally were. It just like it makes it all the more spooky because like you don't know who to trust and like it would just make you very anxious and you don't know like all their abilities and their powers. There's also like a really cool where they film some of these bits where Cheryl's in the, the cellar and they do like the POV shots from the demon. I've, I, Deadite, I should say, I think those are quite fun as well. They literally had such a cheap, like low budget that they couldn't afford camera dollies. So they would use like tape around like wood planks as like tripods and stuff like that. Like it was very DIY. <laughs> as we said, they're, they're unsuccessful. As much as Linda and Cheryl try, they're unsuccessful. Um, into deceiving Ash that they're no longer possessed. Um, they go back to their demon form and attack him again. He locks Linda outside the cabin and tends to Scotty's injuries. Linda sneaks in through the back door and attacks Ash with a ceremonial dagger, which he used to impale her before. Um, so it's a little bit of a throwback there. And then taking her body to the woodshed, Ash tries to dismember her with a chainsaw and even though it's not the boomstick yet this is the first time we've seen Ash with a chainsaw but he finds that he's like unable to do it and buries her instead I I mean would you two be the same because I mean it's you know it's that emotional kind of thing I don't I don't think I could dismember someone <laughs> I would have trouble burying someone alive like if yeah if that if I was presented with a demonite girlfriend uh, or a deadite. Dead, deadite, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I was presented with a deadite girlfriend, I think, and I had to kill her some way, probably dismemberment would be easier. I don't know. I mean, I've never been in that situation, so. Lindsay, what, what are you saying? I know, it's so hard, especially when it's like someone you're so close to, because what are the three options? Fire, dismemberment, or burying alive? Yeah. Mm none of those seem good um but oh, I don't know like with the dismemberment and the burying alive like I vaguely remember having this conversation when we spoke about the remake like you're in such close quarters with them yeah um whereas with fire I guess if they're like knocked out you can kind of just like you know spray your petrol or whatever it is that you're using as your ignition and then set the cabin on fire and walk away and there's a bit more distance but yeah like I don't know maybe you'd feel different if it was a stranger but when it's like your girlfriend that's or your sister like in the remake that's really fucking hard yeah so you have those emotional ties um and with Ash in the original I feel like his role is like a lot more serious um, you know, later on in the series, we get more of the camp and the comedy. And I do think there is still comedy here, especially later on with the Deadites. I mean, some of the the death scenes are so ridiculous. Like, it, it makes you laugh. Um, but, the, you know, in the original film, he is quite serious and he's obviously dealing with the trauma of everything that's going on around him. So he decides to bury, bury her instead because he, he can't go through dismembering her. But she rises from the grave and attacks him forcing him to decapitate her with a shovel. So he has to dismember her anyway. Returning to the cabin, Ash finds that Cheryl has escaped the cellar. So he arms himself with a shotgun and finds her outside and shoots her in the shoulder. He then goes into the cellar to search for more shotgun cells, shells after barricading the doors. That's when he hears voices and sees blood seeping from like all over. 
um, in the cabin and there's a shot I really like I think it's with a projector and blood stripping on the projector and he's behind it I don't know if you guys clock that I mean I think that's like one of my favorite shots at the film because I mean when you think of Evil Dead you think of blood and I just like I thought that was a really cool scene there's a demonically possessed Scotty who tries to kill Ash as Cheryl breaks through the door this is when shit just like really hits the fan essentially during their fight, Ash sees that the Book of the Dead's fallen over near the fireplace and it's starting to burn, as are Cheryl and Scotty. So he's like, in awe of this, this connection here. And as Cheryl raises a fireplace poker to impale him, Ash grabs the Book of the Dead and throws it into the fire. And with the book burnt, Cheryl and Scotty fall apart and die as the sun rises. Now, these scenes are just so ridiculous as well because there's like guts everywhere, there's it looks like milk's coming out of their mouths think of this scene because there's like hands coming out of their guts and everything as well it's it's a lot I love this scene <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was reading it was filmed in reverse am I correct yeah yeah it was okay yeah and just it's gooey milky like just gore everywhere and just rot I, th- I thought it was so visually fun, just fun. Yeah, Lindsay, what do you love these scenes as a fan of like practical effects? Yeah, like the whole like last like little bit of the film is just so gross. Like there's that bit with the pipe that's full of blood and like Ash is just covered and God knows whose blood. There's people like coughing shit in his face. It's just absolutely mad. And then when you see like the deadites kind of like disintegrating, um, I thought when I was watching it, it was like stop motion animation or something, but re- filming in reverse makes a bit more sense. But it, it just looks so cool seeing like all their gross bits and then all these little like hidden surprises that deadites have for you, like hands just like jumping out of stomachs and stuff like that. Like it's, it's really well done. I think this is where it really plays into what Evil Dead as a franchise is about. It's the ridiculousness of it. Because every time I watch this, I giggle to myself because it's just so fucking bizarre. That's what the Evil Dead is. Um, and apparently, the full of facts tonight, the, the guts were made out of creamed sweet corn, if you were wondering. <laughs> sorry if I ruined it for you. I'm sorry, no, up again. <laughs> no, no, no. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't, you'll never look at sweet corn the same way again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. After this, as you know, Charlotte and Scotty fall apart and they die, Ash heads outside and there's an unseen evil that speeds through the forest, breaks through the doors of the cabin and descends upon him. Last fact, I promise, this, the way this bit was shot, they actually had a camera on a motorbike. That's how they shot that scene. Um, again, just DIY. I don't know about health and safety for that, Sam Raimi. I hope you had some safety in place for that. But that's how that was shot. I think Bruce Campbell was doing that shot on the motorbike. He did a lot of the, because I mean, they had a tiny crew. So he was behind the camera a lot as well because he liked to get involved. Ash turns around and screams in terror. And that's kind of where the film ends. It's obviously setting up for the next one. And a lot of people say that Evil Dead 2 is a remake of the original. I mean, it is technically a sequel, but the plot is very similar. But they just have a lot of the bigger budget behind it. Abigail, I don't know if you agree with that. Would you say it's like a remake or would you say, oh yeah, it's definitely a sequel? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's Ash and his girlfriend of the same name. 
from the first one. So I feel like they got the bigger budget and Sam was like, okay, let's like redo it. And people can decide which one they prefer. Yeah, I mean, I think they're both effective. They're both great, but I, I like the grittiness of the first one best. But yeah, I, I would consider it a remake, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, I can see Sam, Sam Raimi is very insistent that it's a sequel. I think he gets a bit upset sometimes when people say it's a remake, but I think they mean it in the best way because, like you say, they had a lot more budget. They were actually able to have multiple sets um, rather than filming in an actual cabin with no electricity or water or anything. The, the crew actually had a union, you know, so they, they had like workers' rights and stuff like that. But yeah, it's obviously setting up for the next one. Um, what do we think of this ending? Lindsay, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I, know, I know you guys keep saying it's like setting it up for the next one, but I kind of like the um, ambiguity of it. Like, again, it's similar with Sleepaway Camp when it's just in Molly screaming. It's like, is Molly going to survive? Is she not? And it's the same thing here. Like, is Ash going to survive? Is he not? And then obviously we know that he does because The Evil Dead is a massive franchise now. But yeah, I like the ambiguity of it. And as well, like, I not kind of given credit these pov dead out shots i absolutely love them like they come in right at the start of the film and i think it's really well done um and i love uh, like you were saying health and safety like did they just drive a motorcycle at bruce campbell and just get his reaction because i would have screamed if a motorcycle <laughs> with that fast was coming towards me as well <laughs> I mean, they probably did. The man has no fear, Billy. So, right. <laughs> box office. Um, so we'll start off with the budget because keep mentioning it's a really low budget. Overall, it was a three hundred and fifty k budget. Um, as I mentioned previously, the initial funding that they got for it was like ninety k. Oh, the film's also inspired by like Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft as well. She just said that at the start. I think you can definitely see that in the the Deadites. Um, but overall, they managed to after borrowing and selling a bunch of their stuff, borrowing from friends, families, and banks, um, Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi managed to get a 350K budget. And then this made 29.4 million at the box office, which considering it's the 80s as well, um, and this did get a theatrical release, was pretty good. Um, and I feel like, you know, before The Evil Dead became such like a cult franchise classic, so many films, I feel like the original, um, had a massive impact on release like Stephen King was a massive fan of it and it was quite unique for the time I would say um but in terms of ratings IMBD gave The Evil Dead a 7.4 out of 10. Ron Tomatoes the critics fucking love this I was quite surprised actually they gave it 95 percent um audience gave it 84 and Metacritic gave it 71 so all around the board positive ratings as we say don't give a shit what the critics say. We only care about our own opinions. So I'm going to start off with you, Abigail. Where are you going to give The Evil Dead out of 10? I love this movie. I love it even more knowing the history of how, how it was made and just DIY all the way. Nine out of 10. Very solid. And what about you, Lindsay? I'm going to give those an eight out of 10. Like, I think it's a really good showcase of practical effects. Um, I think it's a great story and just such an amazing way to showcase Ash Williams. Like, we spend a lot of time with the character. Like, Cheryl and Linda go into their dead out form in quite quick succession. So Bruce Campbell really holds this film kind of on his own, really. Mm -hmm. And 
like I really appreciate that and I think it's really well done and I really should get into the rest of the franchise rather than just watching this one over and over again please do just so I can speak to you about it constantly <laughs> um not very solid scores I'm gonna give the evil dead a nine out of ten I think this is a fantastic film like I say, I'm not massive on franchises, but the franchises that I do love, I love wholeheartedly, which is this and uh, the Alien franchise. The only reason I'm not going to give it a 10 is because I think, in my personal opinion, the sequel's better and the remake, the 2013 one, is just a 10 out of 10, fantastic. But I mean, th this paved the way for what is The Evil Dead and really showcased what you can do with a low budget. And I think it's a real passion project and that, that comes across. Um, so yeah, nine out of ten, very solid scores all round. But that's that concludes eighties night, our totally tribular spooky sleepover. And um, Abigail, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I mean, this conversation was awesome, and I look forward to listening. Thank you. <laughs> uh, next week we are going to be talking about black and white horrors. We're going to be speaking about the Innocents and Night of the Living Dead. The Night of the Living Dead was my choice. And Lindsay, I know you're fucking buzzing about that. I am. Um, like, as soon as I see that, I was just like, fucking yes. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm looking for an excuse to rewatch it. Um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to talking about it. I think the ending of that film absolutely destroyed me um, <laughs> the, the first time I watched it. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yes. Um, Abigail, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, so I have Twitter and Instagram. It's Bloody Milk Crate. Uh, I used to use that when I would sell uh, horror soundtracks on vinyl, so it kind of stuck. Um, and yeah, my book is actually available for pre-order on uh, McFarland. That's the publisher, but I do believe it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble right now. So it's Queer Screams, a history of LGBTQ plus survival through the lens of American horror films. And Lindsay, where can people find you? I am at hi it's Lindsay underscore on all social media. You can find me on all my socials at Lulu underscore Pew. You can find the podcast at Girlfriend Pod on Twitter and Girlfriends underscore podcast on Instagram. Hope you all have a great week. Until next time, stay spooky.